Amen and amen. Well, good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's go uh, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We are in week two of a series called Master Plan. The idea being that uh, there is a plan and, and you didn't come up with it. That there is a master and you are not him. And that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Um, and uh, I just want to let you know it's good to be back. Uh, this past week, Gretchen and I were uh, in Southern California at a pastor's conference in Orange County, and we love California. Uh, the only problem in California is Californians. Uh, that's, <laughs> if you've spent much time there, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's a lot of fellas in scoop necks and scarves, uh, ordering caramel macchiatos and things like that. And also, I don't know if you're aware of this, apparently there is a swarm of bees there that are attracted to 40-year-old ladies' lips, and uh, so be aware if you go. Tragic. So, but we are so glad to be back right here at home in Jacksonville. We love it here, and we're ready to do Bible study today. So, Acts chapter 16, also hope you'll um, grab your notes. We got a lot of notes. It normally takes me an hour to do one point. We have 10 today, so you realize uh, how scary that could be. So if you would, just go ahead and open up your notes. What we're going to talk about today is, is uh, a Latin term called Ordus Salutis, and it'll come right out of Acts chapter 16. And uh, I hope you've got on your uh, kind of Bible nerd hat today because we're just going to dig in deep. Here we go, Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we, the we is Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy. And the reason they're coming from Troas is because they're being obedient to go where God has called them to go. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Now, the reason that they had to find a, a place of prayer outside the city is because there's, not, there's probably not a synagogue in Philippi. Uh, all it took to create a synagogue in your city is you had to have ten godly men um, that worship the Lord, and they could get together and start a synagogue. There are not ten godly men in this place, and so this group of women has started this uh, prayer meeting out by the river. Um, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And so what you might not know about this, that, that means that Lydia was a fashionista. I mean, Lydia was like dressed to the nine. I mean, she's got like seven for all mankind jeans and she's carrying a Louis Vuitton. And when people are like, why do you need a bag that costs that much? She's like, you don't even understand, okay? She, she runs a little boutique at Neiman Marcus and she's the CEO of uh, purplegoods.com and, and she's getting it done. This means that she's rich, she she's works hard, and you'll see that she is a worshiper of God. And some of you are starting to feel a little better about yourself. Let's keep going. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be, a fate, to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Literally, the, um, what that, that means in Greek, that she prevailed upon us. Um, some translations translate it this way, and she would not take no for an answer. So here is this 
leader, this entrepreneur, this fashionista, this, this lady in this city, and she gets saved. She surrenders her life to the Lordship of Christ. And what God does with her is doesn't call her to conform to the pattern of what some other Christian women look like, but frees her up to be the Christian woman that God has called her to be. And she takes a significant leadership role here. She plants a church in, in Philippi under the headship of the apostles there. And what I just want to say real quick, I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, is I want to talk to the, to the working women, to the CEOs, to the doctors, the nurses, the you, okay? Um, praise God for you. If it weren't for the women on staff of the church 1122, there would be no 1122. If it weren't for just women in general since, the Christian women since Christ was crucified, resurrected, and launched this thing called the church, there would not be the church. That you have a significant, significant role in ministry, and your job is not to conform to some pattern of womanhood that somebody else told you about, but it's to walk in the freeness that Christ purchased for you to be who God called you to be. Amen? Amen. All right. Three people over here excited. Now, what I want to spend all of our time, though, is in this um, verse 14 and 15. It says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, then she urged us, hey, let's do church at my house. So uh, the reason I want to the reason I want to hang out there is because I want to talk about, again, what I put in your notes, it's called Ordus Salutis. It literally just means the order of salvation. I want to talk to you really about systematic theology, and I can tell you're super excited about that. And what I want to say, though, is this. We're going to walk through what theologians would call the 10 steps of salvation. And even though, even though I think it's very, very helpful and true in what we believe as a church, I just kind of want to give you this little caveat. That as we walk through these definitions and what happens theologically to the person that surrenders their life to the Lordship of Christ, that it, it's, not, um, it's not as cut and dry as it looks when you talk about it from the perspective of systematic theology. The problem with systematic theology is that our relationship with God isn't systematic, that it's a lot more organic. And so for those of you that have surrendered your life to Christ, you might not even know all these words. You, you probably don't. But just because you don't know all of these words or the order of events or exactly how it happened and how you believe it in Jesus made you a Christian and when you die, you go to heaven. Even if you can't describe all of that with a theologically correct terminology, that doesn't mean anything about your relationship with the Lord. Because your relationship with the Lord is a lot more organic than that. It, it would be kind of like if I was trying to describe sociologically how Gretchen Martin fell head over heels in love with me. Now, I, I could take you back to, you know, she was created with a genetic predisposition to just be attracted to men like me, you know, very handsome and educated and humble, all of those together. I could take you to how she was nurtured in her household with her, um, you know, core values and things that were important. To her, I could take you to the moment when we met in the gym in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, I was just working out, kind of minding my business, you know, just trying to get my swole on because I thought I was like tw early 20s, and so I thought chicks were really into that. Turns out it's not, not as much as I thought. But I, so I'm working out hard, and I just see this little, she used to have blonde hair. I used to see this little, I saw this blonde ponytail just kind of bebop over to her little area. She's a major introvert, so uh, she would always kind of work out over in the corner. And it was like a tractor beam. I just, I just saw her and just started moving in that direction. And um, I didn't have any game at all, but I had Jesus and I had a job, all right, fellas? You get that in order. Jesus, job. Don't worry about the game. Get Jesus 
You're welcome, okay? And so then, then like, I just, I just got too close. I kind of interrupted her little personal space. And so she looks at me like, can I help you? And so the first thing I ever said to her is, can I get a spot, right? That's what I said. And you laugh all you want to, but plot out, right there. Okay, so, so there, we just kind of started hanging out and talking in the gym. And, um, and, and again, you know, sociologically, there were some things happening, but I couldn't describe all that. All I knew is, is that I just stalked her for a while. I figured out <clears throat> what kind of car she drove, and I, carried, I, I packed my gym bag, had it ready in my truck, and I would just drive out of my way by the gym several times a day, and when I saw her Honda Accord in there, I'd just pull in and be like, hey, look, wow, it's us again, working out. And I didn't even have Facebook, a bunch of wimps with Facebook. Nobody's checking in. No, I had to check it out. It was like espionage, okay? It was crazy. And then we would talk and talk in the gym, and then uh, uh, it was in Roanoke, and Roanoke is, um, it, it's in a valley, and then, and then there are these mountains kind of overlooking Roanoke, and they built this star, this big star made out of lights that you can see from everywhere. And I was a youth pastor in town, and so I knew what kids went up there to do, right? And then one day, Gretchen's was talking about the star, and I was like, what do you mean the star? You can go up there? And she goes, yeah, you want to go up there? I was like, oh, I think we should. that's a great idea if you really want to. <laughs> and so we go up to the star after a workout, and we get up there, and it was in the fall, and she's like, oh, I'm chilly. And I'm like, well, let me give you my sweatshirt, right? Because men don't get cold. They get pneumonia. And I just handed it to her and <laughs> freezing to death. <clears throat> and we're, we're sitting there face to face, and we're talking, and this is happening. I see a shooting star, and I saw a deer walk by, and you know what I thought? This would be a good place to put a stand later. <laughs> Come and get, take care of that. But, but it was in that moment when we just fell in love, and we've been married for 13 years, and it's better now than ever. Amen? Now, so, so as we walk through this systematic theology of what it means to be saved, don't lose sight of it's a, it's a relationship with your Heavenly Father. It's just it's a relationship with your Heavenly Father. And... Um, really, the title of today's talk is God Saves. God Saves. So if you want to boil all of these ten things, these theological doctrinal elements, down to just one phrase, the phrase is just that God saves. That this wasn't your idea, it was his idea. And I want you to know this, that just like a, just like a dad delights in his children, in the birth of his children, that God delights to save you. That God delights in drawing men and women and students and children unto himself for salvation. And so with all that being said, um, if you'd open your notes so that you can follow along, and I'm going to use the television here so we can just kind of talk through what the, this order of salvation is. The first word is election. The first word is election. The Presbyterians are feeling great. Everybody else is getting nervous. Election simply means that God chooses. That you didn't choose him, that he chose you. The Bible says it this way. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, the Bible says, Even as he chose us, that, that means election, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us, now don't get nervous, all right, I'm going to come back and explain that word for you. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. All of that is to say that God chose you, you didn't choose him, all right? Um, it's not like you and, and you and God struck a deal. God, I'll be good, and then I can be on your team. But God came after you. He chose you. And uh, the Bible wants us to know that he chose you before the foundation of the world. That, that the, the doctrine of election ought to help you relax a little bit. It ought to help you understand that God's not looking for you to be a better version of you. That God, not because of anything that you've done, but before you were ever even born, that God decided that he would pursue and he would come after you. What a good God we serve. It's not like he's waiting on you to attend church enough that then you will qualify to apply to become a Christian. It's actually the opposite of that. But the Bible says that he, get ready for this word, he predestined us. Now, before you freak out on that word predestination, you actually believe in predestination, you just didn't know what it is. Some of you think, when you hear the word predestination, you think, well, does that mean I'm like a robot, like I don't have a choice, like God just chooses for me? No, absolutely not. That God has given you, um, well, God created you in his image. That means that you have the ability and the right uh, to choose good or to choose evil, to, to, to make a wise decision or a foolish decision. But if you just take that word predestination and just look at what it means, pre just means before, and, and I would just ask you, do you think you have a destination? Another word for, for, for destiny or destination would be to plan, to have a plan. Or do you think God has a plan for your life? I do. Do you think God knit you together in your mother's womb? Or do you think you created you? See, I, I, we all believe that God made us and put us together just the way that he wanted us to. Don't you believe that God placed you where you live during this season, in your neighborhood, at, at your work, in your school, for his purposes and his plan? Well, do you think he's just kind of making it up as he goes along? You think God drives an ambulance and wakes up every day and it's like, oh no, what else has gone wrong in this world that I have to swoop in and fix? Or do you think God actually pre-planned who you would be and what your purpose would be on this earth? Yeah, see, I think I have a destiny, and God is not making it up as he goes, but he's actually thought about it beforehand. Therefore, there's like a pre-plan, or a pre-destiny, or a pre-destination. That doesn't mean that he's taken away your will, but that he has pursued you, that God delights in pursuing you. So, next, gospel call. The gospel call. So God has elected before even the foundation of the world that God decided he was going to come after you. And then next is what's called the gospel call. Um, the gospel call is simply this. The good news is preached. The good news is preached. Christianity is a heralded, a heralded uh, communication that God spoke into existence all things that are in existence. That God spoke through a burning bush to Moses. That God spoke to Abraham. Even when Jesus was born, the angels show up and they speak to the shepherds. John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is on his way. That Jesus commands us to go out and preach the good news to the very ends of the earth. So the, the good news of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just going to be caught. It's not just because you're a nice person doesn't mean people are going to see your niceness and go, oh man, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. No, no, no. It's good news and news is proclaimed by the mouth. How many of you ever heard that, uh, that quote that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words only when necessary? You've heard that one? All right. All right, good. One person. Thanks. Um, way to make a guy feel alone all up here. All right. Well, there's two things. He never said that. And, and secondly... The gospel has to be proclaimed. 
that, that it's proclaimed the good news, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says it this way in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, or beginning in 13, I'm sorry. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news there, right? So who has God elected? The Bible says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news. Now, I don't know about you because I don't know how much you preach, but I preach a lot, okay? Um, every four days, I preach a new sermon. And so this is, this, this is like comfort to my soul. You know why? Because what I know is that God saves, I don't save. And so my job is to just herald the good news, to preach the good news. And it's not up to my delivery as to whether it is effective or not. It's up to God because God saves and not me. It also ought to encourage you to share your faith, not discourage you from sharing your faith. It's almost like, um, I don't know if they do these things anymore, but remember kind of go to work with dad days, you know, like daddy-daughter days, daddy-son days, and you would go to work with your dad that your, your dad could take you to work. That's what preaching the good news is like. God is going to do the salvation. He's going to do the saving. And sometimes he's like, all right, it's go to work with daddy day. Just hop on board, and you're just going to be a part of what I'm doing. I'm doing all the work, but you get to be a part of it. And so for those of you that have been a little nervous to share your faith with your coworker or your neighbor or your family member. Well, I've got good news. You can't save them. Even if you butcher the gospel, even if you make up all kind of like, just crazy stuff that people that just became Christians say all the time, right? Well, everything happens for a reason. No, you're an idiot. That's the reason that's happening to you, okay? That's not a Bible verse. <laughs> say whatever you want. And God can still save. You know how I know this? The nine o'clock service, we had 12 people surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ, and I think the sermon was lame. I mean, it's the same one you're hearing now, but I just, I don't know. I was on California time. I couldn't wake up. I, I, I felt like as I was preaching, this is not good. And then we get to the end. Who wants to be a Christian? 12 people. All right. So me and Jesus, same number of people get saved in, in the little deal there, right? He started with 12 and we had 12 at the nine o'clock service. Why? Because it's the gospel call from God, not from you. Next, regeneration. Regeneration. This, this simply means that the heart is opened. This is that process of God softening the heart of the hearer to hear that gospel call. Um, maybe, maybe you've experienced that. And, and it, in your own world, it went something like this. Like you've been showing up to church and showing up to church and showing up to church. And it didn't make any sense at all. Or you didn't really care. Or you kind of fell asleep or you were bored. And then just all of a sudden one day. You're not sure exactly what happened, but all of a sudden one day it began to make sense or it began to take root or you finally had eyes to see or ears to hear. Well, what is happening is what theologians call regeneration. The Bible would call it to be born again, that God is reaching in and softening your heart that you might have ears to hear the good news of the message of Jesus Christ. That's what was happening to Lydia right here. That's why it says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And then check this out. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Some of you, this is like your third or fourth week here, or maybe your second or third month here. 
And a year ago, you could never even imagine you being in church. And now, for whatever reason, even though, even though um, in your head, you don't even agree with everything that's said here, and yet something's happening in your heart that's drawing you closer and closer to Him. And you used to come late to skip the singing on purpose because it weirded you out. And then you're, you're even getting here during the singing now. And, and if you're not careful, you'll catch your lips moving. You're like, I told myself I wouldn't do that. And you started on the back row where you could hide and get out first. And now you're kind of moving up forward. I'm just telling you, what's happening is the regeneration of your heart. Jesus tells a parable about a farmer sowing seed. And he, and he throws out seed and it lands on four different types of soils. There was a hard surface and the seed was snatched away. There was a rocky surface where as the seed tried to grow, the roots couldn't go deep and so it died. There was a, there was a, um, a surface that grew up quick, but, it, but the thorns and the thistles of this world choked it out. And then there was this one surface called good soil. And, and it produced a crop greater than the amount of seed that was sown into it. What regeneration is, it's the Holy Spirit softening your heart to be good soil. And I just got, I've just got news for you. If that's you, and it's beginning to kind of churn in you, and, and, and you've, you've never come to the altar because you're afraid, like, if you come to the altar, you're going to get it on you, and you'll never be able to get it off of you and all of that. I, just, you, you, I got bad news for you. It's what, it's what John Calvin called the wooing of the Holy Spirit. That God, that God is in his infinite wisdom is regenerating your heart. He's wooing you unto himself. And it's not because you're awesome, but because he is. And so... Um, after that wooing of the Holy Spirit comes conversion. Conversion. Maybe you've heard of the term convert. That's where it comes from. Conversion. Conversion, in, in the language that we use here at 1122, is this. Conversion is to surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus through faith and repentance. At the end of several services, what we will do is say, if you're ready to do this, to surrender your life, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then we ask people to raise their hand. The reason we ask them to raise their hand is because we don't think raising your hand makes you a Christian. Okay, we're going to go through the 10 steps of salvation. But it is an act of surrender. God, here I am. I surrender to you. Now, what you're saying is, God, you've chosen me. You've pursued me. I've heard the gospel call in my life. You have given me a heart to hear and softened it. And now I surrender. I am taking a part in the invitation that you have poured out to me. And my faith is not, or my, my salvation or conversion isn't about me doing better. It's not about me being a better version of me. It's through faith. God opens your heart and he's the one that gives you faith. And in return, you put your faith in him. And it's in repentance. Repentance, the easiest way to describe repentance, it means to turn around that you used to have your face towards sin and your back toward God, and in repentance, by faith, you're going to turn your back to sin and your face towards God. The Bible says it this way in Romans 10, 9. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That salvation is not about you being good. Salvation is not following a list of do's and don'ts. Salvation isn't about obeying the Ten Commandments. You've already busted that up. It's too late. Salvation is not about being good. The message of the gospel is not that you are a mistaker in need of a life coach. So come to church and we'll help you be a better version of you. That is not the gospel. The gospel or salvation is that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That you were dead and God wants to rescue you and bring you back to life. And all that takes is, 
is surrender to his lordship. That you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. It's why when we baptize people here, we take them out in the ocean and say, who is Jesus? And they profess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then what the baptism is, it is it, it's already happened. Their salvation has already happened before the baptism event. But it is to symbolize I'm joining Christ in his death and resurrection. When I come out of that water, I am raised to a newness of life. That is conversion. Next is justification. Now, all of these things like regeneration and conversion and justification, um, as they are happening to you, I don't even know that you would be able to say, oh, I am moving from the justification stage. Into the... No, that's not how it happens. Much like when you fall in love, you're not sure, like, are we still in infatuation or do we move to love or that kind of thing. But, but it's just some theological terms to help us understand what's happening. Justification is right legal standing before God. Right legal standing before God. One of the ways to help, um, help remember what the term justified in the Bible means, it's not totally accurate, but, but it's good enough, it'll help, it's God is a judge, and justification, or to be justified before God means this, and when God looks at you, it's justified never sinned before, right? Again, it's not the perfect definition, but it'll help you understand. The Bible says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me give you two theological terms, all right? I know you're excited. I can already tell. You can show off to your friends tomorrow at work, all right? Uh, uh, one, and this is the essence of the gospel, is what theologians call double imputation. Double imputation. That at the cross, Christ was imputed with our sin. That God made him who was without sin to become sin. So God took our sin and put it on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. He became sin for us that we might become his righteousness. And we were imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Another theological term would be this. um, Penal substitutionary atonement. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is talking about. Penal meaning like penalty or, or like the penal system that God is a judge, God is righteous, and sin must be judged because God is just. And when we sin against an almighty God, it requires an everlasting punishment. Penal substitutionary atonement. That word atonement just means to pay for. So who's going to pay for your sin? Well, Christ is that substitute, that substitutionary atonement. The Bible gives you two options. You can self-atone which means after your life is over and you stand before the judge and you say, I will self-atone or self-pay for my sin, then you can by an eternal separation from God. Or you can take the substitutionary atonement, which is Christ Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. And for those of us that surrender our life to the lordship of Christ, we are imputed with his righteousness. So when the judge looks at you, he does not see your sin anymore, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. The best way I know to explain it would be this. Imagine if you go to your bank account. Some of you won't have to imagine too hard. And you go to your bank account and you look at it and you are overdrawn. Not just a little bit. You, you have negative trillions and trillions of dollars. Can you imagine an organization being trillions of dollars in debt? So just imagine <laughs> that you... And you begin to look at that and think, well, it's hopeless. I mean, what am I going to do? Even if, I, even if I worked for the rest of my life and had two or three or four jobs, or even if I won the lottery or even the Powerball in every state, 
There's no chance of paying this back. I can't pay this back. I'm trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. And it's all my debt. I earned all of that debt. I didn't inherit any of it. That's all my debt by my choice. And then God logs on to his bank account, and he has trillions and trillions and trillions upon trillions. I don't even know what's above trillion, okay, from Dylan. So whatever's above that. I mean, his bank account is just loaded beyond loaded. And then God, in his sovereign grace, says, all right, I'll make a deal with you. You surrender to me, and we trade bank accounts. And I'll take your debt, and I'll pay all your debt, and you'll take all of my inheritance and everything that I've earned. And you go, okay, I'll take that deal. And so you surrender your life to the lordship of his son. And then the next day when you log on, you don't see the trillions in debt, but you see God's inheritance in your account. It's, it's, that's what imputed righteousness means. And so the legal term for that will be justification, that you stand righteous before God. Now, it gets better. The next order here is the word adoption. And everybody knows what adoption means. Adoption is made a member of God's family. Now here, this, this is what, I mean, I just love this about our God. God could have justified us, and, and that, that would have been enough. He could have um, cleansed us of our sins, forgiven us of our sins, and still invited us into heaven, not as a son or a daughter, but as a slave. He could have um, slammed down the gavel and said, I declare you not guilty based on what my son's done, now, uh, you know, cut the grass or whatever. You get to be a servant in the family, not a son or a daughter in the family. But the Bible tells us that God didn't just save us to kind of work for him, but God saved us and adopted us into his family. Check this out in Galatians 4. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Maybe you've heard of the story of the prodigal son. It's, it's, it's like the preeminent text on God as father. And Jesus is telling this parable and if you miss the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, where the prodigal son is found, you'll miss kind of the entirety of the text. And he's talking to, the Bible says, Pharisees and sinners. So everybody's in the room. The very religious and the people that think they can never get into heaven. He's talking to all of them together. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a dad who has two sons. He's got an older son and a younger son. And the younger son comes to the dad and says, essentially says, I wish you were dead. I'll take my inheritance now. Because I think I can do life better than you can do life. And so what does the father do who represents God? He gives him his inheritance. If I go to my dad and be like, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. I'll take mine now. He's like, oh, I'll give you yours. And he wear me out. But not this dad. This dad gives him his inheritance. And then the Bible says that the younger son goes off and squanders away all of the money on wild living. And then one day, while he's feeding pigs, and, you know, that's bad enough in and of itself. But if you were a an Orthodox Jewish boy, that would make you unclean and unfit. It'd be the worst of the worst of the worst jobs you could ever think of. And, it, and the Bible says that he comes to his senses. And so he begins to think, you know what? The slaves or the servants in my dad's estate, they eat better than I eat. Okay, this guy was looking at the pigs, wishing he could eat as good as the pigs. And so he says, here's what I'll do. I'll go back to my dad and I'll apologize 
and I'll work out a deal with my dad, and maybe he will let me just work at his estate, and at least I won't be homeless and hungry. And so the kid, on the way back, he does what we all did when we were teenagers and we were about to get in trouble. He, he rehearsed the um, excuse slash apology on his way there. And so he's going over it in his mind and maybe even out loud on his way back to his dad. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, right? That's, that's how he was going to start off. Well, the Bible says that when the dad sees the younger son returning, and the Bible says from a long ways off, that means that the dad was pursuing the son. The dad was looking for the son because the son was lost. And he sees him from a long ways off, and the Bible says that the dad runs to the son. By the way, first century Jewish men did not run. Amen? That's why I don't run, all right, because there ain't no need for that. So, because you wouldn't do that. I'm not running to you. If you want to run, you can run to me, but I'm not running to you. But But the dad humbles himself and runs to his son. And instead of bringing scorn and shame, and you ought to, and how dare you, and I told you, and I knew you'd be back, and instead of any of that, what he does is he, he, he says, bring the boy a robe, and he takes the robe of righteousness, this clean robe that the dad has, and he wraps it around the son so that, basically he's justifying him, so that when the world sees the boy, they don't see the pig slot, they see his dad's clean robe. And then he says, give the boy the signet ring, and he takes the, the family ring. You had to be a family member to wear the ring, and he puts the family ring on the boy. Basically, he's adopting him back into the family, and he says, give the boy some shoes because servants went barefooted, but sons wore shoes. And so he's adopting him back into the family, and then he goes, throw a party, all right? Filet, medium rare, don't mess it up. Get the boombox going. We are about to have a party because why? Because my son was dead and now he's alive. And if you read the text in Luke 15, he won't even hear the boy's deal that he's trying to make. Just let me back in and and maybe I can eat like one of your servants. The dad's like, shut up, party. All right, that's what we're doing. So God could justify us, but he he lavishes his love upon us and he adopts us as sons and daughters. And so what Galatians says is, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. That, that phrase, Abba, means daddy. It's like an intimate relationship with God. And from in here, that our spirits would cry out, daddy. And that's what worship is. The natural response to salvation is worship. So listen, one of the reasons we, we just worship for real in here We don't sing cover songs and we don't do karaoke. The reason we just worship is because this room, I know everybody in here is not a Christian, but when the Christians gather, we worship our Heavenly Father. And if you're new to church and you're kind of new to expressive worship and you think, that's weird, it is a little bit weird. All right, it would be like you standing in the room while I'm tucking my kids in and they're just telling me, I love you, Daddy. And if you were standing there, you'd go, this is a little awkward. And sometimes you're standing next to a guy and he's singing with his hands up and he's crying and he's just going for it and you think, What is up with this? That guy really loves Jesus. That's what's happening. It's just an intimacy with the Lord. He's crying out, Abba, Father. So that's adoption. Next, sanctification. Sanctification. It just means growing up to be more Christ-like. The gospel is not just for our justification, but also for our sanctification. That God doesn't just want to save you and then one day rescue you from this wretched place and just take you up to heaven. But in the meantime, God has adopted you and predestined you to conform to the likeness of his son. It just means that day after day after day, God disciplines you and I to maturity. 
Sanctification, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 say this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. That there's a partnership with you and the Lord, that you put yourself in the right environments, and that God continues to mature you unto faith. That every day you're trying to walk in the gospel knowing that you're not trying to earn God's approval, but God has purchased you by what he did on the cross, and then walking in that and reading your Bible and saying prayers and getting together with other Christian brothers and sisters to hold you accountable and talk about the Scripture, that that helps you to just grow in maturity. One of the ways I've heard it described is is the way Michelangelo would create a sculpture. People would ask him, how in the world do you do that? And he says, well, uh, when I look at that rock, that big old piece of stone, I can see the sculpture that lives in there. And my job is to just chip away everything that is not a piece of that sculpture. That's, that's kind of what sanctification is. That God sees in you the sanctified version of you that he created you to be. And through his church and through his people and through his word and through sermons and through all kinds of different environments that you should put yourself in, that God just continuously chips away all the things in you that don't look like him. Now, is it a quick process? No. It's a very slow process. It's like watching your children grow. You ever watch your children grow? I especially remember very early on, everybody told me how great being a dad was, right? When I first came home with JP, I've got to admit, I got him home. You know, the hospital was great. They'd, like, change him and, you know, feed. It was great. I thought, well, let's just stay here. This is so perfect. And I remember on day three, they were like, all right, you got to go home. They're like, we don't know what we're doing. All right, so... We get home, and uh, I remember the first time, it's just kind of me and him for a couple of hours, and I just watched him and watched him and watched him. And then Gretchen comes in and goes, how'd it go? I was like, not good. Why? Nothing happened. I mean, nothing. I watched him this whole time, and he's not growing. He's not improving. He's not, I mean, he just is there. And oftentimes, that's how it is in our sanctifying process with Jesus. That when we are born again, that, that walking with Jesus, it can take a while to grow up. It can take a while to grow up. Now JP plays baseball and Reagan's learning how to swim. And you know what, you know what good parents do? They celebrate the victories. They celebrate the victories. And they also, good parents, have age-appropriate expectations. All right? So Reagan is in infant swim rescue right now, but she, she can like swim all the way across the pool. So she does a couple of little strokes, and then she flips over like that deal and takes two breaths, and then she swims a little bit. And when she goes just from one side of the pool to the other side, we clap and cheer and be like, yay, baby, that's awesome. Michael Phelps got nothing on you. Woo! But if Gretchen were to jump into the pool and take two strokes and flip over and two strokes, I'd be like, babe, you need help. All right? <laughs> and so that's how it should be in the church. Especially our church, we got a bunch of baby Christians. We have 598 people that have surrendered their life to the Lord since the day we opened. Amen? Woo! Now, but you know what that means? If we had 598 babies in here, it'd be a mess. It'd be a mess. And so the church should always be a mess, as long as you got some babies. But you don't stay a baby. If you stay there too long, developmentally, there's a problem. You've got to bring in some experts. You've got to bring in some special help. You're like, hey, something's not maturing right here. The same thing is true as a believer. And so God wants to continue to work in you to sanctify you so that you and I grow up to be more like Jesus. 
And as we do that, we come to perseverance. Perseverance simply means this, remaining a Christian by grace. That's what it means to persevere. Um, The old dead reformed theologians would call it the perseverance of the saints. The Bible says it this way. It says in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So sometimes people will ask me, can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Well, to which I answer, it's not like your car keys, you know. It's not like if you're anything like my wife. I don't see her in here. I hope she's not. She just, apparently she walks in our house and closes her eyes and just throws her car keys somewhere random. (laughs) So that when it's time to find them, nobody can. That is not your salvation, okay? The question is not, can you lose your salvation because you didn't save you? Didn't we establish that in the beginning, that God saved you? So the question isn't, can you lose your salvation, but can God lose you? He saved you. You weren't saved by anything you did anyway, so can you unsave you by not being good enough? Absolutely not. Once you're saved, you're always saved because it's God that saves you. This should help you relax a little bit. This should help you quit white-knuckling your way to good behavior and abide in him and let him abide in you. And then you can walk in the freedom purchased for you by the blood of the cross. And that he who began that good work in you, that moment when you surrendered your life to the lordship of Christ, not only is he the author, but he's the perfecter of your faith. And he will bring you to that day of completion in Christ Jesus. Now, it gets kind of weird here. Death. Death is a part of your salvation. Um, death, obviously, is going to be with the Lord. And so, God didn't save you to just perpetually live here forever. That a part of your salvation is that we are citizens of his kingdom and not this kingdom. And so, when you go to the funeral of a Christian, it's just different. It's just different. I'm not saying it's not sad. Yeah, absolutely. God has given us emotions to mourn and to miss people. Yes and amen. And so, you know, especially if you're a new Christian, if somebody, the next funeral you go to of a believer, there's going to be some, like, chicken soup for the soul Christians that will say some just dumb stuff. Oh, we're here to just celebrate. You shouldn't be sad. Like, no, you're dumb. Leave me alone. Because I'm sad. This is somebody I love. I'm not going to see him for a while. But death is a part of what, what God had planned for you in the order of salvation. The Bible says it this way in Hebrews 9, 27 to 28, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so a part of God saving you is bringing you to be in his presence forever. Before I handle the 10th one, I just want to point out the point to you. And I put it in your notes. Here's here's the point. That God created you, he pursues you, he redeemed you, he rescued you. And this is what should help you relax a little bit. And it's not because of you. But it's because he so loves you. And it takes the pressure off. It takes the pressure off. It actually should fuel you to help walk in righteousness with him. Not feel this oppression of being good enough. That God so loved you. I mean the right now you. Think about how crazy this is. That when God extends to you the offer of salvation, do you know he realizes the deal he's getting into? That when Christ suffered and died on the cross, how many of your sins were future sins at that point? All of them. 
Every single one of them. And so when he says, hey, I want to adopt you as my son or daughter. And you come back with, yeah, but Lord, you know I'm going to disappoint you. Oh, I know. I know it all. In fact, since I know that you are going to stumble and fall, I can't really be disappointed because I know what I'm getting into. And even though that's true, not because you're awesome, but because he is, he sends his son to suffer and die, to pay the full penalty for our sin, to atone for our sin that we might be reconciled unto him. And so sometimes you'll hear that language of a person getting saved. Well, what do they get saved to? The last one is this, glorification. Glorification means forever in glory with God. Forever in glory with God. I just want to read to you what the Bible says, what forever in glory with God looks like. It's found in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. The Bible says this. This is John, who's a friend of Jesus, who gets this crazy revelation or dream. And Jesus tells him to write it all down. And here's what he writes down. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was sitting on the the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. God saves. God created you. God formed you. God pursues you. God redeemed you, and God sent his son on a rescue mission for you. Jesus has this invitation in the book of Matthew chapter 11. He says this, in verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. By the way, if you are here today, guess what? that God has chosen to reveal himself to you this day. Then verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. So guess who Jesus' invitation is to? It's to all. All who labor and are heavy laden. Um, Some of you have been laboring in religion and trying to impress God with how good you can be. And you know it is exhausting. And some of you are heavy laden with sin and guilt. And there is no heavier burden to bear than a sin that you think could never be forgiven. And so if you fall in one of those camps, then guess what? Then God's invitation from Jesus is to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you know what rest for your soul is? Rest for your soul is not try harder. Rest for your soul is not do better. Rest for your soul is I gotta, it's not, I've gotta work out some of these things in my life so that I can be uh, okay before an almighty God. You've tried that before and it's exhausting. Rest for your soul is also not, I'm gonna run from God because of the things that I've done. He would never, he would never allow me to enter his kingdom. Rest for your soul is to come to him and surrender. Say, okay, God, I understand that you're a good dad and that you love me. Not because of me, but because of you. And with that truth in mind, because of what Christ did on the cross for me to bear the weight of my sin, then God, I surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. And then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will fill you. And that's what it means to have rest for your soul. So all you who are weary and heavy burdened, the invitation today is for you to come to Christ to come to Christ, to surrender your life to Him and to experience all that He has promised you. And let me just say this too. If you're a Christian, can I just remind you of the gospel? Can I just remind you that the gospel is not just for your justification but also for your sanctification? That so many times, many of us came to Christ and received His amazing grace and then feel like, now I've got to help Him out a little bit. Now I've got to do better and try harder and be more. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is come to him and he will give you rest for your soul. And then it's by abiding in him that you can walk in that freedom, that you can live that life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ this morning, this morning I want to give you the opportunity to surrender your life to Christ for the very first time. Would you just bow your heads right where you are? Not because it's magical, but just so that you can remove the distractions of those sitting around you or the distractions of your world. And if you have heard the gospel call, if God has softened your heart, and if you would like to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ for the very first time, would you raise your hand right where you are? Would you say, God, I surrender. And you pray whatever words God lays on your heart. But would you just confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It's not a hand in the air that saves you. It's not a magical prayer that saves you. It's God that saves. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you and I praise you that there is salvation in this place. God, I thank you that every person in this place could hear the gospel today. God, that you love us, not because of us, but because of you. Because you are love and you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, that Christ died for us. God, thank you. Thank you that even while we were a long ways off, God, you came running after us. That you put the robe of righteousness around us. You claimed us as your own and you adopted us as children into your very own family. God, the only appropriate response to that is worship and praise. And God, I thank you that you would even save some in this room this very day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you please stand? We respond to the gospel here at 1122. We respond by singing to Him, just like we talked about, singing Abba, Father, to Him. We respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around the room. And we respond by just coming to the altar and spending some time with your Heavenly Father. Won't you respond?